0: We're recording. Bant, bant, bant. <laughs> hey, move I up, went to a uh, up, an escape up, room up. last night. I saw that on your post, although I was confused at first because the time said like two minutes, and I thought, wow, she escaped in two minutes. Well done.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. We had two minutes to spare. <laughs> so there was a lot of
0: okay. running
1: about frantically and yelling at each other to no, get that.
2: Is that the one in at the city?
1: Yeah, we went to Fox in a Box and it was very enjoyable. We did the, uh, what was it? It was Nikola Tesla, so it was like Tesla's mystery or something like that. And everyone I was with was like, oh, Elon Musk. I went, no. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Not that one.
2: (laughs) No. Still insane, just in a very different way.
1: Hmm. Yes, very true. I was uh, particularly proud of the fact that the reason why we were wasting so much time towards the end was we were getting very stuck on a particular clue that we couldn't work out how to solve. And it turns out it's because I had already partially solved it about 20 minutes earlier. And (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to give it away, but it was like you had to get something to put inside something. But I had already done the thing where you put something inside, but with something else. No, I can see the face you're making, Julian. Stop that. You can't set me up like that. I'm sorry. We're not doing fan fiction this week. Stop that. Oh, dear. But, no, it was a lot of fun, and I thoroughly recommend uh, doing an escape room if no one has done that yet. Uh, it was number four on my list of 40 before 40, so that's another one ticked off. So I'm so very excited How, how
0: many is that now?
1: That's like 10.
0: (laughs) 10 out of, you're a quarter of the way through
1: it. Yes. I've still got quite a lot to go. (laughs) You're going to
0: have to just take some time off work and really dedicate like a month just getting everything done.
1: I'm I, I'm not going to be able to take any time off work before my birthday. There's a lot of stuff to be done next year unfortunately, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, we should get into the episode. Welcome everyone to We're Not Helpful, a podcast about books and our recommendations, our opinions and thoughts on books. And joining me today as always is Brayton and Julian. Hello.
0: Hello everyone. Hello.
1: Oh yeah, I should introduce myself too. I'm Eloise. Hi <laughs> oh, Eloise. You know <laughs> who are you again? The, um... what, what do you do here? The, uh, the, we've just met. Where am I? Uh, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> Why are you? <laughs> oh dear. Well, before we get in, Where's Buttercup? Yes. <laughs> before we get into this week's topic, how about we talk about what we have been reading this week? Um, who wants to go first?
2: I shall go first. Excellent. I'm still reading the same book, Phantoms. (laughs) Lovely. It's a long book, but it's a good one. Um, And uh, now the whole town is missing, and now the army has shown up because they're convinced it's some kind of bacteriological infection that is chemically engineered and what have you. But they (laughs) are sadly mistaken. It's not aliens. It's not aliens this time. But (laughs) I won't give away the ending. I'm also reading a lot of Calvin and Hobbes because somehow I managed to subscribe to a Calvin and Hobbes fan page on Facebook. <laughs> so I've been reading a lot of that lately as well. Does that count if
0: it's, it's just a valid posted
2: onto read. Facebook? <laughs> I,
0: well, Calvin and
2: Hobbes was only a strip. It was never a, a long story. So yes, I, I'm going to count it.
0: Fair enough.
1: <laughs> it's a very cute, funny comic strip. I never get it.
2: engaging and hard hitting at times.
1: It can't yes.
2: I was more partial
1: to Garfield growing up. See ah, Garfield. I, I never got into Calvin Hobbes because
0: back when I was reading comics in <clears throat> if you remember Factor X in like the Sunday newspaper, mm-hmm. Calvin Hobbes was mm-hmm. always the really long strip that I just didn't have the motivation to read through. But now as a mid-thirties person looking back, it's actually really good. And I really should read more.
2: Only- the only comic I didn't like in Factor X was The Family Circus. Oh, I wanted to yes. punch that little kid square in the face.
1: That one sounds familiar, but I don't remember what that <clears throat> one's about.
2: It was that little one circle of, like, it was just one frame, and it always
0: sucked, and that kid was <laughs> such a little punk. It's family like,
2: Circus, my ass. It was just him being a dick for a whole frame.
0: It was it, It's like the same format as The Far Side, but just not funny. Oh, yeah, I agree about Family Circus. It felt much more like a slice of life kind of thing with bad humor.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think what comics I used to read in in like those X Factor ones. There was like Garfield, and I think I remember reading the Phantom for some bizarre. The
0: reason. Phantom was there for a while. Yeah, yeah. I think the Phantom is still foot- going. Foot flats.
1: I never got into Foot Rock Flats. I don't know why. It just bugs <gasps> me. Oh no. <sighs> Gotten Julian offside early.
2: <laughs> oh, dear. I quit. I quit the podcast.
1: Oh, Good, that's we... what you quit the podcast over? That's my line in the sand, apparently. <laughs> oh, well, at least we know. Oh, no, that's interesting. Uh, Brayton, um, yes. what have you been reading this week? I've
0: actually, well, this fortnight since our last recording, I've actually gotten through two books since last Good recording. Word. I know. <laughs> well, one of them is... Matthew Riley's newest offering, Mister Einstein's Secretary.
1: Ah, oh. now which, that one's kind of yes. based on a true story, isn't it? Well, or it's it's based in a
0: true story by the fact that Einstein existed.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: And, well, I'm sold. It's basically a biography. Yeah, it it is essentially. No, it's essentially about, and it's a, it's a different offering from Matthew Riley. If you don't know who Matthew Riley is, he usually writes a lot of thriller action. Thing. Like, he describes his books as action movies in print.
1: They're very bombastic.
0: <laughs> they are, and they are not... Well, there's quote, a big word. <laughs> we like to elevate our
1: vocabulary on this show. We read enough. We we should be read, <laughs> like, using proper words. Be, be yes. good speaking. Words speak good. <laughs>
0: um. So anyway, so his books are not quote unquote high literature. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's never going to win a Pulitzer Prize, and he pretty much admits that himself. He knows the type of books he writes, and he just leans into them. He's not ashamed you know, about it at all.
1: That there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes you need a bit of ridiculous fluff with, like, yep, where you don't have to think about anything. I have heard explosions on the page. Ooh, explosions. That's,
0: that's exactly it. I have heard his books described as a palate cleanser. You could read War and Peace, and then you need something. Fast and mindless, you get a Matthew Riley book and you read through it in a day. And that's I think I'm gonna have to do it. that
1: after I finish Moby Dick.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts about that.
1: But <laughs> I don't have many more at this stage. <laughs> they're but... at sea now, yes, they're finally, at... yes. they got on the boat and they're at sea. That's all I have to report on, I'm afraid.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'll keep talking if that's all Good. you've got for Moby Dick.
1: Yes, please do.
0: <laughs> um, so anyway, Mr. Einstein's Secretary is a very different book for Matthew Riley. It's still very much his style, as in it's a very quick read. Like, I got through this thing in probably three or four days, and that's just reading at nighttime before I go to bed. And it's not an action book. It's much more of a drama, I would say, drama slash thriller in certain parts. But it's essentially about this woman who is German and she's raised in Germany during the time when the Nazi party are just kind of coming to power and things are starting to get a bit more, I don't know how to describe, volatile, I guess, is the word you would use. Mm. But it turns out she grew up next to Albert Einstein when he lived in Berlin and it essentially goes through her life of her escaping Germany as the Nazis take over she goes to secretarial school in the US and becomes secretary to all these people, including at one point Albert Einstein. And it also leads her to becoming a spy for the US during World War II.
1: We're like spies.
0: So I won't I say too much more um, to get in so we don't get into too many spoilers. It is a really easy read. So if you're looking for something that is quick and easy, definitely check it out. My critiques of it would be that. Matthew Riley, he tried to do like this epic life story of this woman from her early days right up until essentially the end of World War Two, But because he's kind of went across this broad scope of decades, there's so many moments that I really wish he'd taken the time to expand on a lot more. Mm. Especially...
1: He he's, Yeah, he's a very... Mm. Um, very quick like scene to scene kind of yes writer
0: yes and there's so many moments especially i think the most interesting stuff for me was when she is this spy in germany and getting all these insights into like the early days of when the concentration camps were being set up and actually visiting these concentration camps and seeing how they develop and just having to stand by and watch these atrocities mm. atrocities happen and take notes on what her bosses are saying about it and how they can like increase efficiency with the, the furnaces at Auschwitz. And, it's and such that's a,
1: almost a story in itself. Exactly. It's, it's like, really. I wish the whole
0: book was just about that section. Yeah. Because for me, that was the more interesting, thing, but it just gets glossed over this whole thing and I just wish Mm. there was I wish there was more I wish this was one of those books that was like a thousand pages long and he just took the time to explore these kind of things which is very rare for me to say because I will very hesitantly pick up a thousand page book
1: (laughs) it sounds like Matthew Riley is probably not the author to delve into those kinds of topics though you'll probably find those kinds of books written by other authors no and
0: the thing is I enjoyed the book like if I didn't enjoy it I wouldn't have rushed through it so fast and I've been a fan of his work since I was like 15 years old so literally half my life I've been reading his books
1: that's excellent and, yeah. I know I've read the one um that involves the the theme park with dragons the great and someone literally the, says yes, have the, you not watch Jurassic Park and then everything goes to shit
0: yep the great zoo of China
1: that's the one. That's yep. a good
0: book. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fun one. I really enjoyed that one. And it, is, def- it is definitely a Jurassic Park ripoff, and I think he knew what he was doing.
1: Yes, absolutely. Celine, and- have you read any Matthew Riley?
2: No, I have not. My um, mother-in-law keeps trying to get me to read Matthew Riley, so I'm staunchly holding out against doing <laughs> it simply <laughs> for that reason. I don't I don't like being told I need to read a specific author it turns mm. me off
0: wanting to actually do that. Yeah.
1: No that's fair enough. <laughs>
0: yeah. So yeah it's it's different for him but I knew what I was getting into when I started it. So I didn't it didn't disappoint because I knew what I was getting into. Fair enough. But yeah but getting to the end it's just god I wish there was more of this part or this part or, or I wish he'd explored these kind of things a bit more.
1: But Well that's you know, a great Yeah. I was about off, to say, it's go. a great recommendation. And no, if I any should... of our listeners have any recommendations for Brayton on like more in-depth stuff about mm. Auschwitz and World War II, maybe send them our way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but I was just going to say, I've actually met Matthew Riley twice. Really lovely oh. guy. Yeah, really lovely oh, just guy. Just
2: name dropping now, are we? Oh,
0: yeah, because <laughs> if I name drop him and then send him an email and go like, hey, I just mentioned you on our last episode. You want to come on? <laughs> Needs for, he needs our help. He needs our help in, in publicising his books. <laughs> I don't know how else he's going to get them out there. I don't. I don't know. Um, he also has a movie on Netflix called Interceptor, which he wrote and directed.
1: Oh, really? Ah, yeah. yeah. What's
0: that, that about? Um. Essentially, there's I apparently mean, nothing good if you read the reviews.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> look. Isn't that the review of every Netflix movie? Look, I'm going well, be- yes. <laughs> to.
0: I, I watched it. I'm going to preface it by the fact that if you go into the movie knowing it's a Matthew Riley movie, you're not going to be disappointed because it's exactly the same as
1: his books. Well, what's the problem there? I, I, I will
0: say that is
2: accurate of every Netflix filming thing, except maybe something by Mike Flanagan. Yes. He seems to get good reviews by everyone. <laughs> yeah.
1: I um, always find people confusing when, like, you go into those types of films, and it's like, "Well, what were you, were you expecting?" It's like you go to John Wick, and then someone says, "Oh, there wasn't much of a storyline." I'm like, "I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry. What were you expecting it's, other than it's, it's... crazy fights with knife fights and and?" It's people... like the people
2: who are upset by snakes on a plane. Yep, that movie <laughs> delivered <laughs> I mean, on its promise. Did you want Shakespeare here? Were I... you expecting Hamlet retold?
1: I definitely wanted snakes on a plane and that's what we got.
0: Yep, I walked it, out of that, movie. L. Jackson <laughs> fighting snakes on a plane. Yep, I walked <laughs> out of that movie going, you know what? There was a plane and there were snakes on it. I I'm it it delivered what I wanted. And I, I was satisfied. To this day I will defend that movie. I love that movie. <laughs> it's so good. It's, it's so, so good bad. but it's so bad. I so love dumb. it so much. I
1: love how it was one <laughs> of those films where they said they opened it up to the internet and said, give us suggestions for lines to film for this film. And that's how we got Samuel L. Jackson's iconic line of mother effing snakes on this mother effing plane. And I kudos to those producers. Yes. That was amazing.
0: <laughs> that is. Oh dear. I gotta rewatch well... that movie now. <laughs> we'll um, that I have a second book that I read too. This one is oh, sh- yes. this, this one is yes. a shorter one. It's called Hollow House by Greg Chapman. Got it here because I knew I would not remember the author. Um, <laughs> Ju- Julian, you yeah. might actually be interested in this one because this is a horror book. Well, now I won't read it. Yeah, I know because I recommended it to you.
1: <laughs> so belligerent. This,
0: is, yes. this is this is this yes. is one I, I picked am. up. <laughs> this is one I picked up at Supernova about a month ago. Mm. I met the author. He was he's an independent author that was um, selling a few of his books. This is the one I picked up. It was. Nominated for the Bram Stoker Award. Oh,
2: that's quite an illustrious award.
0: Is it? Because I've not heard of it since.
2: Mm, in the horror circles.
0: Yep. So, yeah, I don't think it won, but it was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award. Essentially, it's about this house on a street, the Hollow House. Mm-hmm. And essentially, is the it house. Hollow? Well, it depends how you define hollow. There's some metaphorical language, I think, involved there but essentially it's an maybe evil... the house was a friends we made along the way maybe <laughs> but essentially the house is evil through various excellent for various reasons that become apparent throughout the book but it starts like it. to actually affect the neighborhood and misfortune and everything befalls the people that live around the house and it's sort of examines how this evil kind of seeps into their lives and things like that. So it's kind of like the Amityville house met up
2: with the 1408 hotel room and they had a little kind baby. Of,
0: kind <laughs> of. And it's actually, funny it's, like it. it's it's a short, it's a short book. It's only 167 pages. So I hmm. got through it in less than a week. And funnily enough, it's got the same, I've got the same critique as I do with Mr. Einstein's secretary. In that, I wish it was like another hundred pages longer because it's so short, it doesn't have that time to really examine the characters and some of the motivations, and especially the history behind the house. Mm Because that whole stuff about the history of the house was really kind of, in my opinion, glossed over a lot. And I wish it had examined it in more detail. And I wish we'd had time.
1: Type of horror things where it's like it gives it. Gives it over to you to sort of make up that story for your own imagination. And that's where the horror can come from because it's of the unknown.
0: Yeah. There's definitely things alluded to in it. And there is a lot that you just have to kind of fill in some gaps. Mm. And I think it was definitely an intentional choice by the author to not just spell it out for us. And I'm not really Mm. asking them to spell it out for us, but by the time it got to the end of the book, the characters just didn't, really sit with me like i didn't care as much about them as i had wished and to the point like there were so many characters in here that just a chapter would start and it would say like oh yeah daryl was doing this i had to think okay wait who was daryl what's what's daryl's connection to this and there were a few times and a few little subplots with some characters that i felt weren't as fleshed out as they could have been Mm. um Mm. but yeah i just wish it was longer i actually really enjoyed it I did like the book, despite what I'm saying. I just wish it had more. That kind of begs the question, I think.
2: um, Is it better for a a book to maybe not include as much and and leave you wishing it had included more, or to overstay its welcome, as some books often do, by going into too much detail?
1: I don't think you're ever going to have an answer to that because it depends on the reader. Because I certainly am one of those people who do like things spelled out for me a little bit. Like, I Mm -hmm. like closure and I like things sort of being wrapped up in a neat little package (laughs) um but at the same time like a little bit of mystery is fine but I I do find things very very frustrating when they don't have a resolution or if something hasn't really been explained as well as it could have been um I find a lot of H.P. Lovecraft stories Mm. like that because (laughs) half of them always end with Horror's unimaginable. Well, if they're unimaginable, how am I supposed to imagine them then? <laughs> yeah, H.P. Lovecraft
0: is a good example, but I think H.P. Lovecraft went out of his way to make it unexplainable because he's literally yeah. writing about stuff human minds cannot comprehend.
1: Yeah, he had a lot of ambiguous stories. The stories where he did actually kind of explain things. Um, were the, were my favourite ones, mm. um, which actually had like a complete story. Where sometimes, yes, certain threads were left unspoken, but you still sort of got some kind of um, cohesive structure to what was actually going on. Um, and I am actually going to mention one of them when we get into our topic in a moment. So I'll hold yep. that back, that little tidbit back for now. Yep. Speaking of Julian, did you want to take the lead on this, considering it is your idea for this week?
2: Sure. Um, so, obviously, in my other life, I am an English teacher, and as an English teacher, we often give our students books that they need to read to complete their assessment. And every now and then, you come across a book that really surprises you in, in various ways, ones that you think the kids will really, really enjoy, but they actually wind up hating. Uh, and then there's that other little nugget of gold in the books that you're not sure how they're going to go, or you think the kids might really not like them, and then they wind up absolutely loving them. And I recently taught a unit, and I'll use that as my example um, a bit later. I recently taught a unit where I really wasn't sure how the book would go. Uh, and it surprised everyone in how good it turned out to be and how enjoyable it was for most of the class, myself included. And, Brayton, you said something the, the other week about how you, these days you really only pick books that you think you'll enjoy. Yeah. And so it got me thinking, what are those books out there that you've picked up to read? Maybe you were forced to read something at school and you thought it would be terrible, but you actually were up really enjoying it. Or, or vice versa, a book that you thought, yes, I, finally, this book is out. I can't wait to read it. It's getting great reviews. And you read it and you're just like, oh, well, that really wasn't all I thought it was going to be. Um, so I thought that might be an interesting Thing for us to discuss. We've all come across those books. I think that a surprise us in some way, where we just left a bit flat with it, or it turned out to be a lot better than we thought. Um, usually, the ones we had to read in school, I think. Because mm. I had. So like
0: to talk? Yeah, was when you <sighs> mentioned when you mentioned that topic about especially about mm. um, linking it back to school. I always have flashbacks to year eleven English, where there was a mm. book called Maestro mm. that we had to read, and I didn't read it. I read one chapter of it, and found it so boring, I never picked up the book again.
1: That must have made the assignments a bit difficult.
0: <laughs> Luckily, we didn't have any assignments on that book.
1: Ah, sure enough.
0: Why did you have to read it? I can't remember. This was 20 years ago now. But I guess if we want to jump into my my two examples for this that you made me think back at school is um, one was The Crucible, which I know is a play, but mm. at the time I wasn't as into, I guess, theatre and stuff as I am nowadays, but The Crucible I absolutely loved it and still consider it like my favorite play, and it's mm. still my dream to play Hale in a production of that play. If that opportunity ever arose, anyone out there that works in theatre and is looking for a Hale, I would absolutely. Hey,
1: we have our own theatre company. Admittedly, <laughs> <laughs> we haven't done anything in about ten years. <laughs> Julian,
2: <laughs> um, get on that. Fifteen years, actually.
1: Oh my God, has it been that long? Shh, no, that's not how. Two thousand and eight. Oh my quiet. goodness
0: i um, that old. <laughs> yeah, so I absolutely love The Crucible. Still love mm. it. I think it's awesome, an amazing play. Um, it but my is. my it second is amazing. It is, yeah. My second one is a bit on the I don't know on the nose of classic literature, but it is um, To Kill a Mockingbird. I went into that um... thinking I wouldn't enjoy it because I think it was year, oh, was it year? Might have been year ten or year twelve. One of those two years. And... Usually year ten. Yeah. Look, again, this was 20 years ago. I can't be expected to remember everything about high school. Um I've tried to forget personally. <laughs> yeah, that's fair.
1: Yet you still work in schools.
0: <laughs> my my high school years. Oh, right. <laughs> now I'm the bully. It's okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Wait.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I went I remember I remember being about halfway through to kill a mockingbird, because unfortunately <clears throat> we did have assignments on that book. So I did have to read it. And, yeah, I got about halfway through and went, oh, I'm actually really enjoying this. This is actually good. And no wonder Harper Lee coasted on most of her life just publishing one book. Because it's a a damn fine book, in my opinion, anyway. So what made you think you wouldn't enjoy it going in? Because, and no offense to English teachers, but they have a way of making even the most exciting books sound very boring when you're going into (laughs) it. I will say not yes, because every you english must teacher. understand
2: what every word means what, what is the deeper meaning of the word to yes you, the Oh, title.
1: let me talk to, to you about the great gatsby <laughs>
0: thing. oh Lord, let's 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 not get into that argument
1: no 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 Brayton, you <laughs> keep going on <laughs> yeah
0: i think i think it was just the way my english teacher sort of described oh this is about essentially the civil rights or the early civil rights movement or it was more a when was civil rights? That was the sixties, wasn't it?
2: That was the sixties. Yeah. yeah.
0: So this is like, we're talking about it in context of this was like setting the precursor to the civil rights movement. And it's about this person. And there's these complex characters and we're going to really learn about what, what society was like for people between like the African-Americans and the white people and the culture clashes back then and blah, blah. And it just sounded like, Oh, Okay. I wasn't excited to read it. Let's just put it that way, mm. especially knowing we had assignments coming up for it. And I think, Julian, I think you mentioned last week's show or last fortnight's show that you don't believe you should be forced to read anything because you feel it's a great work of literature. Whereas in school, you're kind of expected to read this because it is considered a great work of literature. Mm. So I wasn't no, excited and I would stand to read by it. That statement. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so let's say I wasn't excited to read it, but it turned out that my assumptions for that book were wrong, and it is actually a very good book.
2: I think the, the brilliance of that book is how it approaches everything, because it approaches the whole situation from Scout's naivety. She doesn't know what's going on, and so we're learning as she's learning, and we're experiencing all of this in real time. I think thats it's not a lesson that's being hammered home to us like a lot of those books can be, yeah. um, particularly the ones that look back on that time, whereas Scout is experiencing all this in real time and struggling to understand what's happening in real time. Yeah, And so I think the audience kind of goes through that with her.
0: Was Harper Lee writing at the time this was happening, or was this like was it set in the past from her? I can't remember when she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. No, she
2: she wrote this. Oh, I want to say in the fifties she wrote this. I think it was set in the thirties. Um, okay, so she, she was, was she was looking girl. back. Yeah, yeah. I just, so she is Scout essentially.
0: Yeah, so it was first published in nineteen sixty, and the book is set in nineteen thirty six. So yes, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, couldn't remember.
2: <clears throat> and of course the uh little bit of trivia that Dill her friend and neighbor was based on Truman Capote.
0: Yes, cuz they were very good friends, weren't they?
2: Yeah, extremely close. And yeah, for Wasn't a long there time there rumors
1: that he assisted her in writing the book or something.
2: There there are rumors that he ghost wrote to Kill a Mockingbird, yeah. Ah.
1: Uh. Yeah. I remember reading it in high school as well because obviously like it was just part of the curriculum so like everyone read it i'm assuming people still read it now as part of the high school curriculum yeah, um yeah. and i don't i don't remember finding it interesting which is a horrible thing to say because it clearly is a very interesting and thought-provoking book and i think the problem is is that sometimes when you're a teenager and you're not interested in certain things like activism it it's just something that doesn't come into your sphere of care and I think that has a lot to do with it when particular books are put on the curriculum for people to learn it is possibly a way to get them to care about those certain things. But I I think the problem with teenagers is that they're always going to be railing against authority, railing against school, because that's just like the typical thing for them to do. So it's almost like they're going to not care or like the book on purpose. And I think I found that a lot with the set curriculum, um, and it was also probably because I was well into fantasy novels at the time and obviously there's no fantasy novels in the <laughs> set curriculum. So it's like, well, I don't want to read this because I'm too busy reading uh, Dragons of Pern and Lord of the Rings. Well,
0: <laughs> we've read The Hobbit in Year 8 English.
1: Oh, you're lucky.
0: Yeah, which so, I is also often read in schools.
1: Yeah. Really? Not it was And
0: uh, The Ranger's How Apprentice. <laughs> I don't oh, remember the Narnia R- being It's The Ranger's Red? Apprentice. In school curriculums? Well, it's only
2: year 12 that has a very set curriculum of books that you can't step outside. Um, Outside of year 12, the school can essentially choose the novels as long as they fit in with what content and what descriptors need to be taught. You can study really any book, whatever the school chooses.
1: I I think I would probably maybe like to reread Killer Mockingbird now just from, like, obviously an adult point of view and having – seen and heard a lot of things now since then that might be very relevant to what's going on in To Kill a Mockingbird. I can see how I feel about it now.
2: The thing about To Kill a Mockingbird and yes I am an English teacher but English teachers mess this book up so horribly because they focus so much on the civil rights and the, the the blacks versus whites in it not understanding that that is only a small part of the book. The book isn't just about Tom Robinson's trial the film was really yeah. just about Tom Robinson's trial but the book isn't the book is about that but it's also about this girl trying to grow up in a world that is trying to keep her down it's also about home lives it's about a struggle for money and and society it's a struggle it's about domestic violence and domestic mm-hmm. abuse it's about um, rape it's about Murder, it's about hate and anger and and all those emotions that everyone feels at some point or another in their life. And so English teachers insisting that it's about this and we're going to focus on this. Well, you're actually cutting off in most schools in Queensland, you're cutting off 90% of your class from really understanding anything. Because I've taught in classes that were almost purely white. I've taught in classes that were mixed race. I've taught in classes where it's mostly girls or mostly boys. Mm. And everyone can get something out of it if you approach it from the right direction. Because it's not just about Tom Robinson's trial. Although Mm. I will say the one part that angers everyone is when Tom Robinson is shot trying to escape from prison Mm. in the back 14 times. Uh. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, That's a, and that gets a lot yeah. of people very angry when they hear that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yep. So. Isn't,
1: doesn't Scout get attacked in the book?
2: She does it's towards she you, did. yeah.
1: I think I remember that <clears throat> more vividly than anything else I remember from the book, uh, and that doesn't happen in the film at all, does it?
2: It does. It happens in the film.
1: It does? Oh, okay. Yep. yep. It's
0: Robert
2: it um, Duvall in his very first film appearance who
0: saves her.
1: Really? There you go. Mike. Yeah, I'm going
0: to have to re. I've been thinking about rereading it because I haven't read it since I was in high school. And I wonder mm, how I would feel about it now as an adult looking mm. back on it. And I think that's to tie into it. Cause I know my feelings towards to kill a mockingbird did definitely was definitely opposed to some of my classmates who were like, like you said, Eloise weren't really connecting to it mm. um, in the same way. And I think that brings up the question of like, One, it's that are we picking or are the people that decide the curriculum picking books that just aren't relevant to kids now? And at the same time, To Kill a Mockingbird is set in a very specific time and place. And a 15, 16, 17-year-old teenager in Australia who hasn't had that experience maybe isn't as relevant or wouldn't have that connection, whereas someone living in America that has some kind of background knowledge about that may feel something different about it
1: it is i think the thing is is that civil rights in america is a very forefront issue because obviously there is a lot of history tying a lot of people to that sort of thing we have the same thing here in australia i think the only difference is is that ours is still very invisible and repressed thanks to certain systems that repress them and where we as, you know, straight white people walk around not really thinking about that kind of thing because it hasn't really been something that was visible to us, especially in our formative years. Like when you think about um, Indigenous culture and teachings and the history of of everything that happens since white settlement, um, like I certainly did not learn about 90% of the things that went on at high school or, or in primary school because it just simply wasn't taught. I don't know if it's any different now. Uh, I think that we are sort of moving towards a little bit more um, historical teachings within schoolings. And I think for reconciliation, we should be doing that more often. But like most of the stuff that I have learned about, you know, what has happened in Australia over the last 200 odd years has come from being an adult, Googling it and hearing the voices of, in you know, First Nation people telling their stories rather than anything I've learned in school. So I think something like To Kill a Mockingbird is important because it does provide um, the context for those kinds of issues um, where it could then leap into learning more about our own parallels here in Australia. And I suppose what I'd like to see is, like, more books that are like that from an Australian perspective going into school curriculum as well because, like Brayton says, it is kind of hard to relate to it when it is very US-centric. I don't know if you guys agree. There are are
2: a number of books, Australian books in particular, that do have those issues in them Mm. the problem is because they're australian they're very realistic in the sense like indigenous people do it tough quite a lot of the time there's a lot of drug and alcohol abuse in in those communities and there's a lot of violence and a lot of suicides and things like that and a lot of the australian books that really portray those kinds of things are very well written but unfortunately schooling and its curriculum is still quite conservative and they don't want those sorts of themes in Mm. schools too much. So, you know, we don't don't get those kinds of things as much as perhaps we would like.
1: Well, maybe, I don't know if we can do like show notes or something. Julian, if you've got any recommendations for those types of books that you can pop in, we can pop into the show notes for people to look at uh, later and perhaps, you know, go and have a look at. At a later time, because yep. um, obviously, that's not going to happen with the schools anytime <laughs> no. soon. The there
0: there is—I um, don't know any books, but there was an Australian movie made a few years ago called *The Nightingale*, which I think was on was on Netflix last year. I don't know if it's still there, but oh, it,
1: yeah, I recall that one.
0: It deals—it's um, set in Tasmania and deals with the effects of the settlement there on the Aboriginal population. And it is very confronting. It is not a movie for mm. kids or even, I'd say, teenagers. But if you're, inter- if you're interested in something that deals with those themes, look up The Nightingale. It is a brilliant movie. I loved it. But it is very full on. So be warned.
1: Just getting back to the, the books that we have read in high school, yes. would you recommend perhaps all of the, the ones that we did have to read to reread again as adults and see how we feel?
2: Don't read Zed for Zachariah again.
1: (laughs) What was that one?
2: Uh, That movie, that book, sorry, is about a nuclear war that happens um, and there's only one person left alive, this this 17 or 16-year-old girl, because her valley is for some reason cut off from from the nuclear exposure. Uh, And then a man appears weeks later or something like that and teaches her how to farm and what have you and, and helps her to raise crops and all the rest. Um and th- then it goes on from there and it becomes quite unnerving as he grows more creepy towards her. Um
1: uh, and that's always the what way. could have
2: been a, a she escapes. Um but what could have been a, a rather good novel and, and explored some really interesting ideas is Really kind of ruined by the fact that it's the 60-year-old white man trying to write as if he was a 17-year-old girl um, and clearly has no clue what 17-year-old girls are actually like or what they think.
1: Uh, that's um, why I have a problem okay. with the Tomorrow When the War Began series.
2: Mm. Yes, uh, <laughs> I haven't seen the series. The book itself I read and, and really enjoyed. I have not read After those the books. first 50 pages.
1: They're, only the they're... first
2: one. I've only read the first one.
1: The oh of the tomorrow when the war began, mm. they get a little bit ridiculous by like book three. The spoilers they've uh they've escaped to New Zealand, and then like the New Zealand army are like, "Hey, sixteen-year-olds who just escaped from Australia, come back with us because we totally need your expertise to fight these invaders." I'm like, that that wouldn't that's dumb <laughs> wouldn't happen. So anyway, yeah. um, yes, I still wouldn't read. The Great Gatsby again.
2: <laughs> I got into an argument with another English teacher about that book because I hate it. I hate the story. I hate the characters. <laughs> and for me to enjoy a book, I need to feel some kind of empathy towards the character's journey. But every single person in that book, with the exception of, I think it's uh, Tom, Tom's wife. No, he was married to Daisy. Uh, one of the other. No, it was one, Daisy's friend's husband, maybe the only one I feel sorry for in that entire novel. Everyone else is just a piece of shit. Um, which, like, that was F. Scott's point, and I get that. He wrote that specifically to show us the hollowness of the quest for wealth and socialite status and stuff in, in Middle America. But, jeez, come on, give us, give us something to, to enjoy. I mean... By the end, everyone basically dies or is a broken shell, and you're like, oh, "Good, good, glad this thing is over."
1: Good, I'm glad you're all dead. Yes, I
2: was. Oh no, Gatsby's dead. What a shame. Oh no, Daisy's a broken shell of a woman whose husband finally got fed up and left. And oh no, he's dead too. I think now. Good.
1: Five um, stars.
2: Highly recommend. Five
1: stars.
2: My 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 English teacher friend disagreed entirely, and we got into quite the argument over that.
1: (laughs) I love how it was Julian who ranted, even though I was the one who brought it up, hating it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've not. Well,
2: I have issues with that book because everyone goes on about how brilliant it is, and oh, good Leo's in a version of it, and he'll do it justice. What justice? Justice. (laughs) I have not
1: read it. it (laughs) It's one of those books where the where it was like symbolism. So much symbolism mm. in it. There's like the sign with the glasses and it's supposed to be the eyes of God. And then my my English teacher like made us write some kind of analysis thing on it for our assessment. And I was like, I don't know. Why why are we doing this?
2: Go <laughs> and read of My Men by Steinbeck instead. It's a much better story.
0: Well excellent. <laughs> I have not read The Great Gatsby or seen the movie, but I have seen The Family Guy adaptation. <laughs> So I feel like that pretty much covers it.
1: Yeah, that that that's they probably different.
0: did a better job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, right, <laughs> shall I talk about my books that I've got? Yes, on that book? note,
2: please let's move on before yes. I have an aneurysm.
1: <laughs> um, all right, so I've got two, uh, three books actually that I will speak about. My that goodness. Uh, surprised me um so the first one is rather cliched but it is the hobbit it was it was one of those books yep. where and I think I spoke about it briefly last week uh last podcast Look, the I hobbit now.
0: the hobbit was on my potential list for this podcast but I didn't include it because I was fairly certain I would enjoy the hobbit before going into it and I did yes so it didn't surprise <laughs> or disappoint me
1: Well, uh, like I had mentioned previously, I hadn't really been that into fantasy novels prior to my dad recommending that I read it. And it just, like, it's one of those things where people say don't judge a book by its cover, but I did because it had a dragon Mm. on it. And it looked interesting. I'm like, oh, dragons. I like dragons. I've been reading Dragons of Pern. Okay, I'll read this one. And I remember, as I said last time, thinking how – it was just such a jolly little book that just drew you into the story straight away. And like, I didn't have the expectation going in that I would really enjoy it. And then it became straight away my favorite book. Like after I read it, it's like, immediately. So, Hobbit's number one on the list there. Yep. Um the second book as I teased a little bit before was um a HP Lovecraft story. So it is The Colour Out of Space. Oh, and that's I a good one. Know, oh, yes. So and if people haven't really uh, read much of H.P. Lovecraft, um, and surprisingly I was speaking to someone the other day who was like, oh, who's H.P. Lovecraft? I'm like, what are you talking about? You don't know who H.P. Lovecraft is. He's the father of horror. But and I will stop. at them for about five minutes.
0: <laughs> I will have to stop because it is. I think we are legally obligated to say that H.P. Lovecraft was a horrible racist and we do not condone any of his views <laughs> right now. Yes. I think we have to preface that first before we go into H.P. Lovecraft because uh, his, yeah, his writing oh is amazing and it has impacted, I think, every single horror writer since then.
1: Look, when you think about it, all artists are terrible. Don't yep. admire any of them because. <laughs> admire Keanu
2: Reeves. Oh, except yeah.
1: who?
0: Except Keanu Reeves.
1: Oh, except Keanu Reeves. Sorry, I didn't hear what you said.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's how, that's um, out yes. of the way. Yeah, The Colour Out of Space you. is a brilliant story. I think it's one of his best.
1: Amazing. It like yeah. this is one of the ones that does not end with horrors unimaginable. It has imaginable horrors because he describes them in great detail. Mm. It was one of and I had been uh I had actually bought one of like the gigantic books that like had about 15 stories of H.P. Lovecraft in it. So, I had already read a whole bunch of his stories in a row and was starting to get a bit bored because some of them do get a bit samey and the endings are very similar, horror is unimaginable. Uh, And then I got to Colour Out of Space and it was just this very slow-burning, intense horror about something funny happening on a farm. So essentially the the storyline is is that a, a meteorite hits the, or meteor, meteorite what is it when it actually hits the ground is it meteorite when it hits the ground or meteor when it hits the ground
0: i believe the technical term is space rock
1: okay i don't know <laughs> i'm focusing on the wrong thing it was about totally a space
0: sure. rock space a, rock yeah but
1: exactly right it's a space rock that slams into the ground and it's glowing purple i think or something it's glowing something so of course you yeah it's, know, let's it's just glowing in an and...
0: indescribable color i think yes it. Think it yeah, is.
1: An indescribable color. So yeah. let's just go in there and take it. That's not a problem at all. Which, which oh. I think,
0: a bit of trivia is the movie version did use a shade of purple that I think the shade doesn't actually exist, at least in nature on Earth, which is why they um, picked that 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 specific shade of color because it doesn't appear naturally on Earth.
1: Is this the Nicolas Cage film? Yes, I haven't watched it yet, and You've, I'm of course it's the Nicolas Cage film. I know I'm loath to because it's like. Nicolas Cage, it could go either way of it being uh, bonkers or being good. And it's, it's like, it's my favorite story.
0: <laughs> and I don't
1: know if the movie it is, is good justice. Look, look, it is, by
0: the way, you're in for a ride. <laughs> oh, yeah. I will say, I've seen the movie. It is absolutely bonkers, but in the best way possible.
1: Oh, uh, okay. Good I think I
0: really, really liked it. There is a lot of um, body horror and stuff like that, like yeah, think remi- reminiscent of The Thing.
1: Mm-hmm. So oh, could- okay.
0: If you can deal with that, then I think you'd really enjoy the Nicholas Cage film. I don't film. remember
1: the book describing it like the thing they um, do.
0: the The movie does adapt some things in different ways.
1: Okay, so with yeah. the book itself, it was one of those books where I was surprised just how scared I was reading it because I don't usually get like terrified or anxious about things that I'm reading. Um, but it really put the creeps in me, something chronic. <laughs> it was just the way things were described. And I don't want to give it away. Like there are just some really amazingly scary moments within this sto- story that I don't want to really describe because I just want to recommend people go and read the book um, if you feel like having a bit of a good scare. Um so yeah, that that's one of the ones that really got to me in terms of I didn't think I would like it because I'd already been a bit H.P. Lovecraft out by that point, um, and it piqued my interest again. So, um, yes, there's there's that one and Herbert. Oh, what's it? Is it Herbert West anim- Reanimate
0: re-animator? reanimator? Herbert West. Herbert Re-an- West
1: re-animator. reanimator. Yes, that that one's also because that's a horror, but it's funny.
0: So. Yeah. I recommend will. That one. If we're if we're on HP Lovecraft tangent for a second, I really recommend the music of Eric Zahn. Which I
1: know I've read that one because well, I've read them all now. Actually, yeah, so they so, <laughs> so so all blend I, into each other. They
0: really do. <laughs> um, music of Eric Zahn is a beautiful story that is actually not. I would not class it as a horror, which is unusual for Lovecraft. It's hmm. just it's just a story about something strange that has happened to someone, and it's not in a the neighborhood. neighborhood. Yes, who you going to um, call? Him? <laughs> probably the ghostbusters he man he man oh yeah good reference oh my goodness um yeah music of eric Zan, where something strange happens but no one dies and nothing horrible happens and no one goes insane it's just a really weird story but at, i think it was actually one of lovecraft's favorite ones too and of course, you can't go. You've you've got to read um, "At the Mountains of Madness" and the, yes. Call of, the Call of Cthulhu." The classics, obviously, both great.
1: What's the one with the with the ape princess?
0: <laughs> uh I know the one, but I can't remember. Let me look. Give us your third George one, of "The Jungle." <laughs> <laughs> yep, talk, start. <laughs> yeah, talk about your third what? book. I'll look up um, what yes, that one excellent. was.
1: So the third one that I wanted to talk about as well, and actually I'm going to bring it up on my phone so I remember who the author is, uh, (laughs) is The Book Thief, uh, and that is by Marcus uh, Zusak. The the Book Thief is one of those ones that was recommended to me, I think, by my aunt who lent me her copy of the book, Um, and she described it as uh, about a a family living um, in Germany during World War II and it's a young girl who's been orphaned so she's come to live with a couple and then they house a, a Jewish artist so they hide him in their basement. And I thought it was going to be kind of like, oh, you know, Anne Frankie kind of book but what really surprised me about this one is the way that the book itself was structured and it's kind of hard to describe but it was just a very unique and beautiful and sort of playful way <clears throat> of structuring where each of the chapters kind of sets up oh, how do we, how do you describe it sets up like the themes and the uh, like the beats that's going to happen in the chapter um, and then it unfolds from there. It's kind of, sorry, I'm not doing a very good way of describing it and you do not get that in the film at all. Like the book Thief I think was probably unfilmable because what makes the book unique couldn't be on film or it could, but they didn't attempt it at all. Uh, it just was a straight story for the film and I didn't enjoy it as much watching it, uh, and they cut out a whole bunch of really important stuff anyway. Um, so, yeah, it was just it, it was just this lovely story about this young girl sort of helping her adoptive parents hide this um, Jewish man, um, and how that sort of unfolds during you know the occupation of the war and the threat of. Um, everything that was happening during world war ii but also finding moments of like happiness and beauty in this basement because he um uh, like he like they paint all of these beautiful things on the wall and tell stories of what's actually on the walls and um but it's also about her like you know at school and just being a normal girl at the same time while keeping the secret and um Oh, that's right. I almost forgot the most important part. The story is being told from the perspective of a personification of death, essentially. So it's kind oh. of like death. That That's what was unique about it. It was death was like putting in all of the bits of what was going to happen in the chapter and then explaining it, essentially. And, yeah, you don't get that in the film. Like that's not happening in the film at all. Um and that's what's disappointing about the film version. So um, it was it, it was a very quirky book and it sort of gave a bit of light to a very dark topic. So there you go, Brayden. Actually, coming back to the whole you want to know about <laughs> stuff in World War II, read The Book Thief if the you book haven't Thief. read The Book Thief. Yes.
0: I've seen that <laughs> so, book in stores so many times I've been tempted to read it, but I don't know, never got around to it.
1: I'm going to double check. I think Mark Susack is, Marcus Susack is Australian, actually. Yeah, well, why I've had
0: students recommend it to me from time to time.
1: Yeah, he is. He's an Australian writer. There you go.
0: So someone recommended it to you so you'll never read it. I'll never read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, that um. H.P. H. Lovecraft story was Facts Concerning the Late Arthur German and His Family. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> Silly, stupid, creepy, weird book. <laughs> yep, that's the one.
1: Um, wow. Julian, did you actually give any options? Options, what am I saying? Uh, any, re- like, books yourself that you, for this topic, kind of talked about? Not yet, I haven't. Brayton right, and I talked. Oh, really? Like, what, what are your recommendations, or what did you find surprising? Or I, like something? I created? would love, yeah, I would love I your perspective you as like it, talk as
0: I would love your perspective, like, as a teacher going and thinking, like, oh, this is going to be awful. And then you actually, a book you actually enjoyed teaching. Have you got anything That's like that? That's what I'm about to talk about. Perfect. Ooh, I do, actually. It's almost like um, we pre-planned this. <laughs> Which we didn't. No.
1: And you no. tell.
2: Um, <laughs> uh, fun fact, of course, um, H.P. Lovecraft was a huge influence on Stephen King. Oh, as yeah. you mentioned, most horror writers. And Stephen King writes a brilliant little short story called Crouch End, which is very Lovecraftian in its way. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think he actually uses Lovecraftian creatures in the story. So if you have an opportunity, it's quite short.
1: Does he use horror's as unimaginable as the ending? Yeah. <laughs> I no. <laughs> okay.
2: No.
0: Well, I mean the fact that it's one have... of the few
2: endings he sticks, actually.
0: Oh good. Oh. And I mean, the fact yeah. we have the term Lovecraftian just kind of shows what kind of influence he has had on mm-hmm. on fiction writing. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to
2: choose one from, from each end of the perspective, one that surprised me and I enjoyed and one that surprised me and I, no, I disliked. I'll go with the one that I enjoyed first. And that is the book from, from a teaching perspective. Um, I wanted to change things up a bit because I had to teach a book couple of years ago called flyaway peter and it was one of the most boring books you will ever have the displeasure of reading um it's an australian novel about a bloke who worked on some property down near bow desert um local birds for the person who owned the property and then decided i should join up for world war one and so he did and it was really boring (laughs) And just to highlight in how boring it was, he actually spends one or two paragraphs describing his friend's friend's hats, oh, which has God, no bearing I'm on the so story nor do his friend's friends. Wait, wait,
0: wait, wait. Let's let's hear about this hat. Anyway,
1: no.
2: it was the hat of someone who has a lot of money. Keep, keep going. It was awful. Uh, and so I decided we're not going to teach that again um the only thing that has come close to boring me like that before is michael gow's away oh, um which i had oh to teach god. and i read the first page with my class and said nope we are not learning this play let's go find another one um
1: Thank god that that was but the, the book right i want to talk choice. about
2: is is fahrenheit 451 ah um by ray bradbury and so ray bradbury of course was very influential in the in the American science fiction writing world in the mm. in the sixties and seventies, um, right up until his death about fifteen years ago, he was very very popular and again has inspired a lot of authors both in science fiction and you know, various other means. Um, but Fahrenheit four five one was probably the first novel which really pivoted him into success in in the US. But it's, it's 60 years old. So it was written in 1963 or published in 1963. So it's 60 years old. And a lot of sci-fi from the 50s and 60s, you kind of look back on now and you're like, oh, it's not really all that interesting. It either never came to pass and never will come to pass, or it happened back in the 70s and 80s, and it's kind of like old hat to us now. Hmm. Um, but the story of Fahrenheit 451, of course, is a, a dystopian near future. So I think it was twenty. 20- 30, I think, was the year it was set, or thereabouts. Um, and it's very normal, almost, society, uh, in that the way everything's described doesn't seem too unusual to how we live now. People go to work, they come home, you know, they have dinner, they live their lives. Except books are illegal. You cannot own books. It's, they've been outlawed by the government because books allow independent thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and creativity and imagination. And The government doesn't like that. And so if you are caught reading books, these firemen come out to your house and burn the books. Um, ah. And, of course, Fahrenheit 451 is theoretically the temperature at which paper ignites. And so that's why he titled it Fahrenheit 451. So the book centres around Montag, who is a fireman. And at first he enjoys his life. Um, he doesn't see any, anything wrong with it. But then two things happen. One, he meets a neighbor, a 16-year-old girl named Clarice, who her family doesn't watch TV, doesn't do anything like that. And they spend their time sitting on the porch, talking to each other and discussing ideas. And she asks him a question. She says to him, are you happy? And he can't answer that because he doesn't know if he's happy or not. Um, and it just, that question continues to weigh on him and weigh on him. And then he gets called to a, to start a fire. He gets called to this woman's house to burn her books. And the firemen are trying to get the woman out of the house before they burn her books because she has to be arrested and what have you. And um, She says no. In fact, she decides she's going to burn with her books, and she sets the house on fire and burns to death with them. Mm-hmm. And that leads Montag down this idea of what is so special about books that she is willing to die for them. And so before the fire consumes the place, he actually steals the book and takes it home and begins reading it. And then the story really begins to move along from there. Um, And I I won't go into too much spoiler or anything like that, but the novel is interesting in a number of different ways. In one that it's it's heading into an, an area of banning independent thought or outlawing independent thought. And I feel that touches on a lot of things these days where, Creativity tends to be frowned upon in a lot of ways, um, particularly independent thought and and that sort of thing and, and, and investigating and researching and, you know, listening to the people who have laid the groundwork for years before us and building on what they all have already done, you know, to take things further. Um, mm-hmm. And this idea that we're in charge and we know better than you. And I found that really, obviously, quite an important thing going on at the moment. But also the way he describes the house. Like, this is written in 1963, but the house has wall-to-wall television. So the screen has multiple screens on the walls. Mm -hmm. And you can watch whatever you want, whenever you want. um, All programmed, of course, by the government. But it also has a video calling where you can stay in contact with your friends via video chats. Um, these little things called seashells, which are like little earbuds that you put in your mm. ears like headphones. I thought, wow, that's a witch, <laughs> he a literally witch. Is describing, <laughs> um, yeah, he's describing basically your your average earbuds that we have today. Um, so and things like that as well, which I found was just really interesting. And I thought, well, we'll go into this story and it probably won't be all that interesting, but it really captures you. And if you've never read Ray Bradbury's work, he has this amazing way of just making you feel really unsettled when he's writing about the most mundane of things. And if you ever read, if you ever get a chance to read a sound of thunder, it's, it's very beautifully written, but also very unnerving in its way. It's it's where we get the whole idea of the butterfly effect from. So that was a Ray Bradbury uh, creation. Yeah. And it's also what that Simpsons episode where Homer goes back in time (laughs) is based on. (laughs) Um. He squishes the bug. Um,
1: what are donuts? <laughs> <Tell me. laughs> yes,
2: and but there's no there's no donut rain in in a sound of thunder, but it is a really interesting, All right. very you unsettling just, kind of Just story. turn
0: me off it. Ah, just <laughs>
2: one star. Um, <laughs> but it's. It's, it's very apparent in Fahrenheit 451 when Montag, the main character, comes home after his first shift, right at the start of the novel, and he's kind of describing the house that he lives in. And there's nothing out of the ordinary. It's kitchen, lounge room, television, wife, bedrooms, stuff like that. But you never feel like it's a comfortable place. You never mm. feel like it's safe. You never feel like it's real. And Bradbury was so good at keeping you on the edge of your seat Throughout the novel, there's just always this unsettling feeling of alienation that he managed to put into his writing. And so I wasn't really expecting to enjoy it. I I have to read this. It's for work. Um, It's 60 years old. The kids are probably going to hate it. But in the end, it actually really surprised me how much I really did enjoy it and how much the students actually really enjoyed it. And the discussions we got out of it um, were phenomenal because... Yes, English teachers do tend to look at books and try and read more into there than there really is. Mm. Um, But Bradbury wrote this book specifically for that purpose. It is a book of um, symbolism and allegory and things like that as well, Um, but just really, really well written, not like The Great Gatsby. Um, (laughs) And so that's a book that I really actually enjoyed that I thought I wouldn't. A book that I really didn't enjoy that I thought I would is the Tommy by Stephen King.
0: Oh, um, bad
2: bad mouthing a Stephen mm. King book. <laughs> so
0: this
2: this book is a you love it or you hate it, I think, from from what I understand. When I was about sixteen, I think I'd read uh, half a dozen Stephen King books already. And they had a mini series on the Tommy with Jimmy Smits in it. And of course I was absolutely smitten by Jimmy Smits at the time. Because he was in <laughs> NYPD Blue and he was, you know, the brilliant but uh you know, slightly unhinged detective. It was oh cool. Um, and so I watched the miniseries and it, it was poorly done, of course. It was uh,
0: mm.
2: network TV, horrible effects, all the yep. actual
0: adult stuff cut out um, because I'm it was network
2: television in very, the 90s.
0: Yeah. Very terrible. <laughs> back back before the golden, um, the golden age of television.
2: Mm. But it had a number of intriguing moments and a couple of genuinely creepy moments. It also had Tracy Childs in there who was – porn star of some fame at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, of course, I was 16. That really did engage me. Um, <laughs> she was having an affair with the mailman in the story, so that was interesting too. Uh, anyway, I thought, I'll read the book because, you know, miniseries are usually crap, but the books tend to be much better, like the Langoliers. Um mm. No, the miniseries was great right up until the Fuzzy Cannonball. Um but that, the, the, the story itself.
1: That, you know, you can't blame that on the effects of the time, though. <laughs> I, I think if you did the Langley now, it would be very good.
2: Uh, yeah, maybe. I just feel like that's a really hard effect to pull off and, mm. and ha- not have people laugh at it.
1: I suppose. Um, I which, which is, is why. why like five times. I don't know why.
2: <laughs> which is I why Stanley Kubrick, I love Kubrick actually cut out the hedge animals in the shining. Um, but, yes, the Tommyknockers. I read the book. and <clears throat> again. Not one single character in that book is likable. Not even the main character. Um, The the character played by Jimmy Smith in the TV series, in the book, he's an insufferable drunk uh, who finds any and every reason to upset people and get into fights. Uh, His girlfriend is just an uncaring, unsympathetic person who just doesn't really care about anyone or anything around her. The townspeople are all horrible, and when they slowly begin to get possessed by the alien life forms, they become even more horrible. And so the novel itself, while people think maybe it was King writing about his own addictions and how it takes people over so insidiously and almost silently until you become a complete shell of a person, it's more like a drug-fueled nightmare than an actual book. And it's, it's just... By the end, you're just kind of happy that the town was destroyed and, and, and everyone's dead, I think. Um, Another one. There's, there's, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's just nothing redeemable about anyone in that story. And the storyline itself kind of vagues in and out of coherent writing. It was the last book that he wrote before he got clean, uh, and he himself has said there's a good story in there somewhere, but we'll never find out what that story is. Because he doesn't have a lot of memory of actually writing the books. So. <laughs> um, but Fair look, enough. some Stephen King fans love it. They they know what it is and they just enjoy it for the uh, complete drug fueled ride that it is. Um, but it's a story that I thought, based on the premise that I saw in the miniseries, would actually be an intriguing read. And it was the exact opposite.
0: Damn. Yeah. So not not on your list of um, recommended Stephen King. No, reads. I did try rereading it ten
2: or fifteen years later, just to see if a bit of adult perspective had changed my mind, and, and no, it hadn't. If anything, I found them worse people than than the first time around.
0: <laughs> I just, I just had to look up um, the Tommyknockers just to get some background info on it while you were talking, and yeah, the literally like one of the first lines in the Tommyknockers Wikipedia page is just says. King has since soured on the Tommyknockers, describing it as an awful book. <laughs> so, yeah, you, yep. And there's that quote exactly right? there's a really good book in here underneath all this sort of spurious energy that cocaine provides, and I ought to go back. So, it feels well, like well, if the opinion. author
1: can say this is a trash novel, then there shouldn't <laughs> be any problem with us saying it's a trash novel. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I wonder how that feels for fans that enjoy the book and then look at it and realize that the author hates it.
2: It hasn't changed people's minds on the Shining movie.
0: Uh true. Mm. It, it's hard when that movie is regarded as a classic of cinema, of horror cinema at least. Look, it's a brilliantly made film.
2: Like it it's it's brilliant, it's unsettling, it's creepy, it's visceral. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was a master filmmaker. Oh. It is just the worst adaptation of a Stephen King novel that I've ever seen.
0: You could say the same thing about the Hobbit trilogy. <laughs> oh. You could. Hey, hey, hey. It may be an unpopular opinion, but I will I will watch those movies and I enjoy them. They are a terrible adaption.
1: Oh, yeah. I... They're, they're um fine on their own if you don't take into account what the actual book is. Mm.
0: <laughs> and I do not blame Peter Jackson or any of that. Any of those no, well, no, it's
1: not his fault at you, all. Like if you he, watch he was... the
0: behind the scenes footage, they had yeah. no time to prepare for this shoot. They were straight into it, and there are literal days where they would shot nothing because they had no script and no ideas about what to shoot. Compared yeah. to Lord he of the was Rings, very they were stressed. Pre- yeah, and comparing it to Lord of the Rings, where they were pre- in pre-production for like five years before they shot any footage. Mm. You can tell why the Hobbit was as unfortunately CG filled as it was because they just had no time to do anything.
1: I find the the weirdest CG part is making Billy Connolly's character. Um, who did he play? Dane, I think. Dane uh, Ironfoot. The, yeah, Dane Ironfoot. His entire he was in costume. They made him up, and then for whatever reason, I don't know. His entire character became CGI, and it is the weirdest thing because, you, like, you can tell it's CGI. It's not hmm. like it was good CGI, because, again, because it was rushed. It was not the type of quality CGI that Wetter is usually known for, and I don't know why they did it. It was the weirdest thing. But I tell you what. The, the good thing about that film, it's got Orlando Bloom and Orlando Bloom 2.0 in it. <laughs> Luke Evans. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so I'm not complaining.
0: <laughs> Look, you get double the Orlando.
1: Yes. <laughs> double the Orlando. <clears throat> uh, I
0: do find yeah. it funny how,
2: uh, well, I don't know if this is actually drawn up, but they tried to shoehorn Aragorn into the story and Vigo said no. I'm, I'm not going to appear in that. Aragorn's yeah. not in the mm. stories. He was. And dead. Orlando Bloom was like
1: canonically yeah, at the time. I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty yeah, sure he was old, like canonically it? only ten years old at that time. Oh, was it? He so was... It was fifty years before. Yeah, yeah. Because I forget, it's fifty it years. before would have been in he was eighty-seven in Lord of the Rings. It was
2: and if it was 50 years before Lord of the Rings, he'd have been, what, 30-something.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, I think he was a little bit younger than that because it was still... You know, I, don't I don't know. I can't, I can't remember. remember now how long before I, it was. I feel uh, I feel bad considering I'm supposed to be this complete repository of um, knowledge of oh, Tolkien. This,
0: stuff. this is what Google was invented for. You were originally correct. Aragorn was around 10 years old when The Hobbit took place. Ha! (laughs) And apparently, would not have
2: stopped them from doing it?
0: Yeah. Yes. And apparently, one of the original pitches for the Rings of Power TV show was a Aragorn prequel series of his days as a ranger. Uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, who knows? If it's not Vigo,
0: it's not worth it. No, that might no, still no.
1: be on the table considering um, which production company has got the rights to do a whole bunch of new pre like prequel Lord of the Ring stories. I'm not sure. Oh, I should look Probably into that. Probably new one. It's, it's not Amazon. Uh, it's a different company again. because no, Amazon uh,
0: only have the rights to the appendices. They actually don't uh, have the rights to the Silmarillion.
1: Yeah, it's so dumb.
0: i don't uh...
1: don't know how it works let's not get into a rant about rings of power because this will go for another hour and on that note i think maybe we'll wrap up for uh for today Thank you very much, guys. Uh, if you would like to follow us on social media, we do have a Facebook page. Go to We're Not Helpful Podcast. Uh, give us a like and subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and on YouTube. Again, do all the likes and the clicks and the subscribes and send us in some reviews. Uh, that yep. would be really helpful. We got some good right, feedback
0: what's... for um, your fanfic from last last episode.
1: Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Greg, for letting me know <laughs> that apparently it was way more erotic than what I tried to lead on <laughs> to say that it was.
2: <laughs> and if you want to
0: try and tell us that The Great Gatsby is a good novel, I will go to war with you. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes,
1: fight Julian yep. in the comments. <laughs> if you want to
0: be a guest on this show to debate Julian about The Great Gatsby, please do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, if you want to email us, what's our email address, Brayton?
0: Uh, it is not helpful pod at gmail.com
1: excellent and i have now set up a messenger app link on the facebook page as well i'm still trying to work out how to get on instagram maybe i'll start a tumblr as well because tumblr's great Ooh. <laughs> why not
0: and if you do have
2: any recommendations that you'd like us to talk about please do let us know and, and we'll yep take them into consideration you know and when we get time of course we're we're huge now we're, we're four episodes in and yeah, have at least well, 10 listeners. So.
0: Yeah, our, our dozen <laughs> listeners. There are dozens of us.
1: Dozen of us. <laughs> hey, we have
0: an official complaint from a listener. We've made it official.
1: Oh, yes I,
0: yes. I never read that. But yes, we did get a complaint about Julian's use of the word nips <laughs> in episode two. Um, you, I shall use it more often. <laughs> yeah, that was the complaint. It wasn't used enough. <laughs>
1: Um, oh thank you, right. thank
0: you for that feedback, Richie. You know who you are. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Uh, well, until next time, uh, keep reading all those novels. I suppose. <laughs> yeah,
0: you're not my boss. Well, don't. We're not your parents. Yeah, <laughs> not helpful.
1: <laughs> you're not the boss of me.
0: <laughs> or just, all right. come, just come to us for all your book recommendations.
1: Excellent. <laughs> read the until great next Gatsby. <laughs> don't know. Don't read the
0: read. Fight me. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye, everyone. All right.
1: Bye. Bye.